I was looking forward to Middle Ashton's generous shade as it was another blearily hot day. Every day seemed hot that summer, but we weren't yet bored to oblivion by the heat. Jochen was in the back, looking out of the car's rear window. He liked to see the road unwinding, he said. I was listening to music on the radio when I heard him ask me a question. If you speak to a window, I can't hear you, I said. Sorry, Mummy. He turned himself and rested his elbows on my shoulders, and I heard his quiet voice in my ear. Is Granny your real mummy? Of course she is. Why? I don't know. She's so strange. Well, everybody's strange when you come to think of it, I said. I'm strange. You're strange. That's true, he said. I know. He set his chin on my shoulder and dug it down, working the muscle above my right collarbone with his little pointed chin, and I felt tears smart in my eyes. He did this to me from time to time, did Jochen, my strange son, and made me want to cry for annoying reasons I couldn't really explain. My mother's cottage sat amidst dense, thronging vegetation surrounded by an unclipped, undulating box hedge that was thick with rambling roses and clematis. Her garden, she claimed, was designed to be a controlled wilderness. She did not own a mower, she cut her lawn with shears, and she knew it annoyed others in the village where neatness and order were the pointed and visible virtues. But none could argue or complain that her garden was abandoned or unkempt. No one in the village spent more time in her garden than Mrs. Sally Gilmartin, and the fact that her industry was designed to create lushness and wildness was something that could be criticised, perhaps, but not condemned. We called it a cottage, but in fact it was a small two-storey Ashlar house in sandy Cotswold stone with a flint-tiled roof, rebuilt in the 18th century. Jochen and I opened the gate and looked around for her, Jochen calling, Granny, we're here! and being answered by a loud, Hip-hip-hooray! coming from the rear of the house. And then she appeared, wheeling herself along the brick path in a wheelchair. She stopped and held out her arms as if to scoop us into her embrace, but we both stood there, immobile, astonished. Why on earth are you in a wheelchair? I said. What's happened? Push me inside, dear, she said. All shall be revealed. As Jochen and I wheeled her inside, I noticed there was a little wooden ramp up to the front step. How long have you been like this, Sal? I asked. You should have called me. Oh, two, three days, she said. Nothing to worry about. I wasn't feeling the concern that perhaps I should have experienced because my mother looked so patently well. Her face lightly tanned, her thick grey-blonde hair lustrous and recently cut, and as if to confirm this impromptu diagnosis, once we had bumped her inside, she stepped out of her wheelchair and stooped easily to give Jochen a kiss. I fell, she said, gesturing at the staircase. The last two or three steps tripped, fell to the ground and hurt my back. Dr. Thorne suggested I got a wheelchair to cut down on my walking. Walking makes it worse, you see. She led us through to the kitchen. I looked for evidence of a bad back in her gait and posture, but could see nothing. It does help, really she said, as if she could sense my growing bafflement, my scepticism. The wheelchair, you know, for pottering about. It's amazing how much time one spends on one's feet in a day. Jochen opened the fridge. 
What's for lunch, Granny? he asked. Salad, she said. Too hot to cook. Help yourself to a drink, darling. I love salad, Jochen said, reaching for a can of Coca-Cola. I like cold food best. Good boy. My mother drew me aside. I'm afraid he can't stay this afternoon. I can't manage with a real chair and whatnot. I concealed my disappointment and my selfish irritation. Saturday afternoons on my own, while Jochen spent half the day at Middle Ashton, had become precious to me. My mother walked to the window and shaded her eyes to peer out. Her kitchen dining room looked over her garden, and her garden backed onto the meadow that was cut very haphazardly, sometimes with a gap of two or three years, and as a result was full of wild flowers and myriad types of grass and weed. And beyond the meadow was the wood, called Witchwood for some forgotten reason, ancient woodland of oak, beech and chestnut, all the elms gone, or going, of course. There was something very odd happening here, I said to myself, something beyond my mother's usual whims and cultivated eccentricities. I went up to her and placed my hand reassuringly on her shoulder. Is everything all right, old thing? Mm, it was just a fall, a shock to the system, as they say. I should be fine again in a week or two. There's nothing else, is there? You would tell me. She turned her handsome face on me and gave me her famous candid stare. The pale blue eyes wide, I knew it well. But I could face it out now, these days, after everything I'd been through myself. I wasn't so cowed by it any more. What else could it be, my darling? Senile dementia? All the same, she asked me to wheel her in her wheelchair through the village to the post office to buy a needless pint of milk and pick up a newspaper. She talked at some length about her bad back to Mrs. Cumber, the postmistress, and made me stop on the return journey to converse over a dry stone wall with Percy Fleet, the young local builder and his long-term girlfriend, Melinda, Melissa, as they waited for their barbecue to heat up. A brick edifice with a chimney set proudly on the paving in front of their new conservatory. They commiserated, a fool was the worst thing. We said our goodbyes and I pushed her wearily on over the uneven surface of the lane, feeling a growing itch of anger at being asked to take part in this pantomime. She was always commenting on comings and goings, too, as if she were checking on people, clocking them on and clocking them off like some obsessive foreman checking on his workforce. She'd done this as long as I could remember. "'You mustn't be angry with me, Ruth,' she said, glancing back at me over her shoulder. I stopped pushing and took out and lit a cigarette. I'm not angry. Oh, yes, you are. Just let me see how I cope. Perhaps next Saturday I'll be fine. When we came in, Jochen said darkly, after a minute, You can get cancer from cigarettes, you know. I snapped at him, and we ate our lunch in a rather tense mood of long silences, broken by bright, banal observations about the village on my mother's part. She persuaded me to have a glass of wine, and I began to relax. I helped her wash up and stood drying the dishes beside her as she rinsed the glasses in hot water. Water, daughter, daughter, water, sought her daughter in the water, I rhymed to myself, suddenly glad it was the weekend, with no teaching, no tutees, and thinking it was maybe not such a bad thing to be spending some time alone with my son. Then my mother said something. She was shading her eyes again, looking out at the wood. What? Can you see someone? Is there someone in the wood? I peered. Not that I can spot. Why? 
I thought I saw someone. Ramblers, picnickers, it's Saturday. The sun is shining. Oh, yes, that's right. The sun is shining and all is well with the world. She went to the dresser and picked up a pair of binoculars she kept there and turned to focus them on the wood. I ignored her sarcasm and went to find Jochen and we prepared to leave. My mother took her seat in her wheelchair and pointedly wheeled it to the front door. I'll call this evening. Would you do me a little favour? she said, and then asked me if, when I telephoned in future, I would let the phone ring twice, then hang up and ring again. That way I'll know it's you, she explained. I'm not so fast about the house in the chair. Now, for the first time, I felt a real small pang of worry. This request did seem to be the sign of some initial form of derangement or delusion. But she caught the look in my eye. I know what you're thinking, Ruth, she said, but you're quite wrong, quite wrong. She stood up out of her chair, tall and rigid. Wait a second, she said and went upstairs. My mother came down the stairs effortlessly, it seemed to me, carrying a thick buff folder under her arm. She held it out for me. I'd like you to read this, she said. I took it from her. There seemed to be some dozens of pages, different types, different sizes of paper. I opened it. There was a title page. The story of Eva Delektorskaya. Eva Delektorskaya, I said, mystified. Who's that? Me, she said. I am Eva Delektorskaya. The story of Eva Delektorskaya. Paris. 1939.